BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us, our old buddy, Dr. Michael Mann, one of the, literally, one of the world's leading climate scientists, distinguished professor of meteorology, the director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, recipient of the Tyler Prize, author of several books, including most recently The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and oh, his most recent one, The New Climate War. Michael Mann with two N's dot net is his website. You can tweet him at Michael E. Mann with two N's. And Dr. Mann, welcome back to the program. Um, it is going to be 115 degrees in the shade here in Portland this weekend. When we were, Nate and Sean and I were talking about you being on the program here before we went on the air as we were setting stuff up and getting ready, Nate pointed out that back in 2019, uh, on this show, you had told us you were shocked that the Arctic was hitting 104 degrees. It's, it's 119 now in the Arctic. What is going on? Yeah, uh, thanks, Tom. It's good to be back with you. And that uh, Arctic temperature reading, fortunately, it isn't quite as bad as it sounds. That was a ground temperature estimate from satellites. And as you know, um, as we all know from, uh, you know, walking around in our bare feet in the summer on hot sand, uh, the ground can get much hotter than the air around it. The air temperatures uh-huh. were in the 80s, and that's bad enough. Uh, temperatures in the 80s Fahrenheit up in the Arctic. So we're seeing the warming. But as you noticed, as you noted, um, if you really want to see the devastating um, impact that climate change is already having, all you have to do is go outside uh, your door uh, because you're witnessing that in Portland. You're witnessing that in the Pacific Northwest, an unprecedented uh, heat wave that has the fingerprint of human activity, uh, human-caused climate change all over it. So the IPCC, the International or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is preparing a new report about the state of things that I believe is going to be released next year, but a preliminary piece of it got leaked and it reads like, you know, apocalyptic. Are you familiar with this? What are your thoughts on this? I am. It's it's a draft report. And so those of us sort of in the field are always a little bit antsy in talking about these leaked draft reports because they are drafts. They haven't yet been reviewed. And uh, there is great likelihood that there will be 
all sorts of comments, um, peer review comments that will be made, and the report will be revised in response to them. Uh, but here's the important thing to know about all of these reports. In a sense, there's no way that they can surprise us, or at least those of us who are in the field, because the reports are simply communicating what has been established in the peer-reviewed literature. That having been said, the person on the street doesn't keep up with the peer-reviewed literature. And so when these reports come out roughly every four or five years, they really do serve an important role in updating us as to where the science is. And it is fair to say that uh, there is, you know, there are developments um, over the last four years since the last IPCC report that do demonstrate some impacts are, are clearly appearing earlier than we would expected uh, we would have expected and one of the examples is in fact the impact that climate change is having on extreme summer weather events uh, unprecedented heat waves and droughts and wildfires and floods uh, and the climate models it turns out are a little bit behind the curve in capturing some of the real world processes that are involved and so some of our work has in fact argued that the, the climate models used by the IPCC to assess the impacts of climate change may be underestimating the impact that climate change is having on these extreme summer weather events. And you're witnessing it right now in the Pacific Northwest, a, a truly unprecedented heat wave, and one for which people who live in that part of the country aren't prepared for. They simply aren't prepared for the sorts of heat waves that we're used to seeing in the desert southwest. Yeah. Well, I remember, you know, hanging out in, in Phoenix, Arizona back in the 70s when they thought 101 was insanely hot. <laughs> and here it's 115. Right. You and I talked about this uh, some time ago. In fact, I think we've talked about it a couple of times. The meridial overturning ocean current. I'm mangling the, the phrase, <laughs> but basically the, the great conveyor belt is how I've always referred to it. This this yeah. flow of ocean currents that, that goes, you know, that carries warm water from the Pacific uh, south around the, the, the southern tip of uh, Africa and then all the way up to uh, basically, uh, you know, near Greenland, that if that thing slows down, it's going to alter weather patterns in ways that would be terrible. You know, they made that movie the day after tomorrow, you know, which dramatized it in ways that was almost absurd, but nonetheless. But I'm seeing new reports. Uh, I've got one in, in my uh, Nature subscription suggesting that this current is starting to stutter in ways that are beyond what they were expecting. What's the deal there? Yeah, no, that, that's right. This is another one of those examples of impacts that are playing out earlier uh, and, and with a greater magnitude than the models predicted just, say, you know, a decade ago or so. In fact, back in 2015, my co-authors and I, uh, Stefan Romstorff from the Potsdam Climate Institute and colleagues, published an article where we demonstrated using models and paleo observations that there is this unprecedented slowdown in this very important current system, the, as you say, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, Thank to you. use the technical term, <laughs> or AMOC, or simply the conveyor belt that, that transports warm waters into the higher latitudes of the North Atlantic. You dump a whole lot of fresh water into the Arctic, which happens uh, when you melt ice sheets like the Greenland ice sheet, and that fresh water freshens the upper part of the ocean that decreases the density of the surface waters that are used to sinking there. So it stops the sinking motion that drives that overturning. And what we're seeing is that that ice melt is happening earlier than we expected. And so that fresh water is coming into the North Atlantic earlier than we expected. And that current system is now slowing down earlier than we expected. Now, 
you know, it's not going to have the impacts portrayed in the day after tomorrow. That was a caricature of the science. But as you allude to, there are some important uh, and worrying impacts that this will have. Uh, one of them, for reasons I won't go into, if you slow down that current system, you actually cause sea level to rise even faster hmm. uh, along the eastern seaboard in the U.S. So we'll see more sea level rise. You bottle up the warm water because you're no longer exporting it to higher latitudes. And that means that there's more of that heat in the tropical Atlantic to generate unprecedented hurricanes like we've seen in recent years. And there are other impacts as well that this could have. So it's a reason for concern. And it's a reminder that uncertainty is not our friend. In many respects, as we learn more, as we observe more, we do see that things are happening faster and with greater magnitude than we expected. It isn't the end of the world, um, but it's worse than we expected. And it's more than reason to take even more urgent action to address the climate crisis. Which brings me to my final question. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Michael Mann, literally one of the world's top climate scientists. How are we doing as a planet in terms of trying to limit global warming, both in the United States and around the world? You know, what's your prognosis now? I mean, we, we were talking about trying to stop all this, maybe bring it to a screeching halt at 1.5 degrees. I'm seeing articles suggesting that, you know, we've shot past that threshold. Have we? We haven't. If you crunch the numbers, there are no physical obstacles to stabilizing the warming below one and a half degrees Celsius, about three Fahrenheit, where we'll start to see the worst impacts of climate change. We're already seeing dangerous climate change at a little over one degree Celsius. It gets much worse at one and a half and even worse at two degrees. So it's not a cliff that we go off at any particular amount of warming, but it's like this dangerous highway that we're going down and we want to get off at the earliest exit we can. The one and a half degree Celsius exit still is available to us, but we have to take dramatic action. We have to bring carbon emissions down by a factor of two in less than a decade. That's a monumental task. We're seeing some reasons for optimism now, more leadership from the United States uh, going into this next conference of the parties in Glasgow later this year, uh, COP26. There's reason to believe that we'll see meaningful ratcheting up of those Paris commitments, enough to start to get us on that path that we need to get on if we're going to avert catastrophic warming. Okay, but we've all got to work our butts off to make this happen. That's right. Yeah. Dr. Michael Mann, thank you so much. MichaelMann.net, the website. You can tweet him at Michael E. Mann with two N's. Dr. Mann, thanks so much for dropping by. It's always great talking with you. Thank you, my friend. My, I appreciate it. We will be back on the Tom Hartman program, back with your calls right after this here on the Tom Hartman program. The place where despair is not an option. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and Henry in Fairview, Oregon. Hey, Henry, what's up? Hey, Tom. Just wanted to invite all your listeners to come to our big fundraiser tomorrow, starting at 6.30 p.m. Tom, so this is very critical for us. We are the uh, Multnomah County Democratic Party, the most important progressive driver in our great state of Oregon. We really have an awesome speaker. Perhaps you've heard of him, Tom Hartman. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I know. Yeah, you heard him. You know. I'll be there. <laughs> MaltDems.org is the main website, and you can drill that's down right. into it. And, right. and that's in Multnomah County, which is Portland, basically, and, and environs. So, uh, Henry, thanks for the plug, and good luck to Thank the Multnomah Dems. May you all raise a whole pile of money, because you're doing, you're doing God's work there. Thank you. Jessica in Chicago. Hey, Jessica, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I love the 
you let us fight for the important causes. We need to give reparations why there are still actually three living survivors of the Tulsa massacre. And we need an apology for the horrors of the enslaved and the horrible massacre. Something has to be done about this. Jessica, I'm wondering, you mentioned reparations, and, and I agree. We owe a huge debt to the Native Americans we slaughtered and to the African Americans whose ancestors we had enslaved. Is there a particular piece of legislation or any particular program that you think is a good example of how we should be doing this? Not yet. That's why GiveButter.com, we're doing it individually. I love all your causes. I'm going to help out your causes, too. GiveButter.com? So okay, I'll have to check that out. I'm not yeah, familiar give with Yeah, GiveButter.com. It's 40 acres in a school to help the black farmers. Yeah, 40 acres in a school. That's great. Jessica, thank you. Thanks for the Thanks. heads up on that. I will check it out during the break. We'll be back with your calls after this. Stick around. Gina in Sebastopol, California. Hey, Gina, what's on your mind today? Hey, how's it going? Hey, thanks for taking my call, and I'll take the answer off there. I'm listening in the news, national news. What's going on, if you could update us, please, on ensuring that the law they pass or the, the bill they pass includes fully financing the election, local election boards, so that they're not taking just volunteers and paying them a day labor wage, but in fact, taking professionals who know the, how can I say, the workings of elections in that particular district. I have done it. I've been a captain precinct 13 in San Francisco when I lived there. And, you know, it's mostly, it's a it's a good thing because you've got good, conscionable people getting involved. But I'd like to see it financed so you just, you know, it wasn't just haphazard. And right. I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. No, th thank you, Gina. I, I totally get it. And, you know, I've told the story before. My mom was one of those people who, you know, checked people in when they were voting when I was a little kid. To the best of my knowledge, federal dollars are not funding those things at the state level. Now, I may be wrong on that. It's possible that the Help America Vote Act, in addition to allocating $5 billion to give to voting machine companies, also passed some money to the states for this, but I don't believe so. I believe that these are things that are funded at the state level. Probably there would be a mechanism through which it could be funded federally because the Constitution does give the, the federal government the right to administer federal elections. Um, but then states have to, you know, when there's a state election that's, that doesn't have federal candidates, which is actually fairly rare, but nonetheless, um, you know, states would have to just do them themselves. Um, but that's, uh, frankly, beyond my level of knowledge of how that works so, uh, or what could be done. It would be a good topic to find out. So thanks for the call. Thomas in Dartmouth, Mass. Hey, Thomas, what's on your mind today? Good afternoon, Mr. Hartman. I've been wanting to call you in with this for quite some time. Back in March 2020, right at the beginning of lockdown, I uh, was talking to a friend of mine who's an investigative journalist, and he told me about a story he was working on regarding white supremacy. And I had two and a half months where I was isolated from anybody that I cared about because of COVID, and I went down the rabbit hole of watching everything and reading everything I possibly could on white supremacy in the United States. I stumbled upon a video that blew my mind and I've been wanting to share it with you for quite some time. 
remember when they had the Charlottesville incident where the guy drove through the crowd and killed the young lady and yeah, injured a bunch of people? Yeah. Yes. Are you familiar with a gentleman by the name of Richard Spencer? Yes. Yeah, he's a white white supremacist and neo-Nazi, if not an outright Nazi. Yeah, I'm very familiar okay. with Richard Spencer. Okay. He's also he was also Stephen Miller's mentor in, in college. Yep. And Stephen Miller has been disowned by his family because of his white supremacist views. And what I found that was and, interesting and worked was, for Donald Trump in the White House for years. Absolutely, had his ear for um, four years. Absolutely, which is very scary when and arguably together. was the architect or certainly a participant in much of the whole program to take children away from their parents at the border. Absolutely, absolutely. So what I found was is that didn't make the headlines, unfortunately, what I'm about to tell you, but I did see the video and hear it with my own eyes, which sent me down the rabbit hole of that. Two weeks later, Richard Spencer went back to Charlottesville to the same university with the Tiki Torch guys, and they came out and marched again on the, on the, on the campus. And what they were saying during their march literally just frightened me because in war, once you have monetary support, you're in a much better position. And to see several hundred white supremacists marching, screaming in unison, Russia is our friend. You will not replace us. Russia is our friend. You will not replace us. Over and over and over again. So I started looking deeper into Mr. Putin and Russia and what they've been up to with right-wing movements globally and knowing that white supremacists it's, it's enormous what Putin yeah. is up to. And it's well, and there is a huge movement within Russia, and, uh, you know, I, I can't speak specifically about Putin, but broadly, you know, a white nationalist movement. And they're not unique in this, by the way. This is, you'll, you'll find this throughout a lot of the former Soviet states, and, you know, particularly in those regions, I'm forgetting the name of the, the region in Russia where they had the that, that school that got occupied, you know, by the by the breakaway rebels, and it was actually a Muslim yes, movement. Yes, yes, and so, yes. and they're identifying the, these Muslims as not white, and so we have because it's not just white. This is not just being a white ethno state, uh, which is people like Spencer are trying to emulate here in the United States, but it's also a, a, a pseudo Christian ethno state. Yes, and but here's one other thing, if, yeah. if I could just interrupt you real quick, because I don't, I want to get this point to you as well, is that I also went down the rabbit hole of Putin. And understanding, and I also studied Mussolini, and I studied Hitler for many years, and I realized that Mussolini and Hitler were essentially, they were socialists in the beginning of their political careers, and then they make this pivot to fascism. When the, when, when the moneyed interests finally show you know, their willingness to work with them, they'll make this pivot. And I watched the two-hour video that was put out by the Financial Times. It was a direct interview with Vladimir. And in that interview, he literally admits that he has made the pivot. He's done the Mussolini-Hitler pivot. He is no longer a communist. He is a full-blown white supremacist, nationalist, fascist leader. And even the guys from the Financial Times jumped up in their chair and started scribbling everything coming out of his hand, out of his mouth, as yeah. fast as possible. It's such a pivotal moment, they've actually isolated it and put it up on YouTube. So yeah. for me, as an American citizen, seeing what's going on, globally as well as nationally the white supremacist movement in this country is no joke and we must No, it's not a joke and it is not just in this country it is international and it, and it is being contributed to shall we say not just by russia but by others but it, but certainly a lot of this stuff is coming out of russia 
and many of the trolls as well, you know, the whole white nationalist trolls. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I totally get it. And I get why, uh, why you're so shocked by it. It's, it, it but I, you know, it's, it doesn't seem to be a secret. Thomas, thank you for the call. Larry in Los Angeles. Hey, Larry, what's up? Hi. Yesterday, you were trying to recall the three main Nixon con artists who were never held accountable, right. two of which were uh, have gone on to commit crimes against the American people, Paul Manafort and Roger Stone. The third was uh, Lee Atwater. Yes, you're right. He died in, he died in 1991. So it, yeah, and the uh, three of them had a PR firm back in the, back in the 70s with, right. with uh, Nixon. Thank you for that. But I, bring, I bring him up today because when I was talking about the uh, critical wealth theory, I was actually using Lee Atwater's code of ethics, where he explains that you can no longer use the N-word anymore, but uh, racism has become so abstract that all you have to do is say tax cuts. And it hurts minorities more than it does whites, and therefore they're willing to uh, fight that battle. Right, white people, you yeah, that was, what was it, the 80s that he said that? Or maybe it was before, maybe it was in the 70s that he said that. The, Mother Jones was, he, was, yeah, was who dug uh, that video out. And so, uh, and it's audio. still out there. I wish, yeah. I wish everybody would play it once every two months or so. Because Mitch McConnell, the main reason why he's against the current president is he doesn't want them to get rid of Trump's tax cuts for the rich. Right. There's that cold word again. Yeah. And so when I when I was talking about critical wealth theory, Mitch McConnell, Moscow Mitch is, is practicing what practicing what uh, Lee Edwater taught us back in the eighties. Mm -hmm. Tax cuts hurts minorities. And Mitch McConnell doesn't want to get rid of that racist policy. The, the systemic racism that's built into it, he doesn't want to get rid of that for America because he wants Biden to fail. Yeah. And, and Biden needs to make, make sure that he gets a huge tax cut for the rich. All he has to do is look at what happened with Obama. Obama extended Bush's tax cuts in his first term and saw one million jobs created. Yeah. He then increased taxes on the rich in his second term and saw 10 million jobs created. Yeah. yeah. And you go, right, you, you go right down the line. Bill Clinton increased taxes on the rich and saw 23 million jobs created. George Bush cut taxes on the rich and saw 1 million in eight years. Obama saw eight times as many jobs as Bush saw created. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you, Larry. You pointed that out before on this program, and keep doing it, because you are absolutely right. These policies work to the advantage of the very, very wealthy, these Republican policies. Democratic and, they, and you can take this back many, many years, many decades throughout most of my lifetime, and Democratic policies work to the advantage of everybody else. Spot on. Larry, i got to run, but thank you for the call. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. 
Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And uh, welcome to Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Crash of 2016. This is one of the very last chapters. It's titled Green Revolution. Just as America now faces an unsustainable thirst for energy, so too was Germany faced with a power crisis in the late 1990s. Growing demands for electricity collided with the reality that the country has no oil reserves and a strong bias among its people against building nuclear power plants in the wake of the nearby Chernobyl meltdown. Yet the government knew that the country needed the electricity, equivalent of at least one or two new nuclear power plants over the next decade. So how to generate that much electricity without nuclear power? In 1999, progressives in Germany passed the 100,000 Roofs Program, which mandated the banks had to provide low-interest 10-year loans to homeowners sufficient for them to put solar panels on their roofs. They then passed the Renewable Energy Law and integrated the 100,000 Roofs Program into it in 2004. The Renewable Energy Law, REL, mandated that for the next 10 years, the power company had to buy power back from those homeowners at a level substantially above the going rate so that the homeowners' income from the solar panels would equal their loan payments on the panels and would also represent the actual cost to the power company to generate that amount of power by building a new nuclear power plant. At the end of the 10 years, the power company gets to buy solar power at its regular rate and it now has a new source of power without having to pay and maintain and eventually dismantle a nuclear reactor. In fact, while the reactor would have a 20 to 30 year lifespan, the solar panels typically last 50 years. For the homeowners, it was a no brainer. They were getting low interest loans from banks for the solar panels and the power companies were paying for the power generated from those panels at a higher rate, uh, high enough to pay off the loans. It was like getting solar power panels for free. If anything, the government underestimated how rapidly Germans would embrace the program, and thus how quickly power would be produced by the program. By 2007, Germany accounted for about half the entire world's solar market. Just that one year, 2007, saw 1,300 megawatts, and a megawatt is a million watts, 1,300 megawatts of solar generating capacity brought online just across Germany. For comparison, consider the average generating capacity of each of the last five nuclear power plants brought online in the United States. That capacity is 1,100 megawatts. So Germany had 1,300 megawatts just in 2007 added. In 2008, Germany added 2,000 megawatts of solar power to their grid, like two nukes. And in 2009, homeowners and businesses put onto their roofs enough solar panels to glean an additional 2,500 megawatts. Although the goal for the first decade of this century was to generate around 3,000 megawatts, eliminating the need to build two new nuclear power plants, the simple no-risk program had instead added over 8,000 megawatts of power, roughly eight nuclear power plants. 
And because the generation sources were scattered across the country, there was no need to run new high-tension power lines from central generating stations, making it more efficient and less expensive. Meanwhile, as dozens of German companies got into the business of manufacturing and installing solar power systems, the cost dropped by more than half between 1997 and 2007 and continues to plummet. The Germans expect that by 2050, more than a quarter of all their electricity will come from solar. It's now just over 1%. Now, I wrote this book two and a half years ago. Germany this summer produced 100% of their electricity this way. That's how rapidly this has changed just in the last three years. It's really remarkable. Adding to the roughly 12.5% of all German energy currently produced by renewable sources, mostly hydro, but also wind, biomass, and geothermal. The solar panel program has been so successful that the German government is now thinking that it's time to back off and leave this to the marketplace, which they've largely done. And it's not just leaving it to the marketplace. They had to reinvent their grid. There's to be a smart grid to handle all the added electricity that all these solar panels were producing. They have too much electricity now in Germany. Germany is now considering incentives to its world-famous domestic auto industry to manufacture flex-fuel plug-in hybrid automobiles that can get over 500 miles per gallon of strategic gasoline boosted by domestically produced rooftop solar with existing technology. Meanwhile, Denmark has invested billions in having more than half of its entire auto fleet using only electricity by 2030. And China is no slouch when it comes to renewable energy. Although the Chinese continue to bring another dirty coal-fired power plant online about once a week, they surpassed every other nation in the world in 2010 in direct investment in the production of solar and wind power. As the Los Angeles Times reported in March of 2010, U.S. clean energy investments hit $18 billion last year, a report from the Pew Charitable Trust said, a little more than half the Chinese total of $34 billion. Five years ago, Chinese investments in clean energy totaled just $2.5 billion. The United States also slipped behind 10 other countries, including Canada and Mexico, in clean energy investments as a share of the national economy. The Pew report pointed to another factor constraining U.S. competitiveness, a lack of national mandates for renewable energy production or a surcharge on greenhouse gas emissions that would make fossil fuels more expensive. The ultimate power to the people is for homes to have their own solar roofs no longer needing power lines from distant power plants owned by big transnational corporations. The crash of 2016. And welcome back. Tim in Aloha, Oregon. Hey, Tim, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Yeah, I'm pretty consistent about it, Tom, because there are so many, there's so people, so few people you can talk to anymore that actually have a clue what's going on, unfortunately. Sadly. But it's, it's really, it's pretty pathetic. But, you know, there were a few things I wanted to say, but I kind of draw this into, into one, one particular comment that kind of sums up my life based on what you've been talking about, the economists you're talking to and Bernie Sanders and so forth. My dad was a, had to quit school during the Depression in the 10th grade, and uh, he was, oh, what a tough, yeah, so he was. He eventually got drafted and ended up being uh, wounded in, uh, in northern Italy on December 10, 1944. Wow. And I've got an envelope in my safety deposit box with the 88-millimeter artillery shell that they took out of him. They gave it to him. Wow. And he made it. You know, he stayed in the Army because he was such an effective soldier. He got a civilian job on the base after he bought his house for $300 down in 1956. Mm. Yep. And, and he said, he, said he, he raised five boys, and he pulled us together, and he said, listen to you guys, there's four things you've got to do in life. 
he said, your word is your bond. doesn't exist anymore. You need a contract to walk across the street. You don't buy anything you can't afford, having been a Depression kid. You pay your bills on time. He was proud of that. And he said, if you got an appointment at 9 in the morning, you show up at 845. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, I got a wonderful education. I own everything I have. I've been married 38 years to the same woman. I'm debt-free. I have enough credit in my, my wallet to charge something for $50,000 with a zero balance. How did I do, do that? I grew up in a $37 a month apartment, seven people, two bedrooms. My brother slept in a walk-in closet. So how did I do that? Well, you do what you've got to do. I mean, you know. Yeah, but you see what I mean? That doesn't exist anymore. We've oh, got I think it certainly happen. does. There, there, yeah, in in have, fact, if anything, it, it exists even more because you've got, uh, in particular among millennials, um, you, you know, the, the moving back in with mom and dad is a big thing, uh, you know, uh, sharing uh, living space. I mean, and this is because the economy, you know, has, has just been the middle class and the economy in general over the last 40 years has just been gutted. I mean, Tim, yeah, you and I, you know, belong to a generation where, where you know, we, we could kind of do, at least, you know, if you were white in America in the 60s, you could do anything. And, and now it's, it's, it's uh, there are some structural difficulties, including massive student debt, the cost of health insurance, uh, the cost of housing. I mean, all these things are very, very substantial oh, realities. Yeah, and and, and it's, it's gone out of hand. And, and I'm, I've been in the same neighborhood for 31 years. I own my house. I've seen yeah. two and a half generations of kids grow up in my neighborhood. And I've, there's a lot of people in my immediate area that make very good money, but most of them don't have a... They're, they're on the edge financially, and a lot of it is because they've, over, they've overtaxed their financial situation. You know, mm-hmm. They buy things that they don't need to do. If they, if they could get by with two cars, they buy three. You know, that's the kind of thing that's happening. There are 8 million people in this country that are 90 days late in their car payments. Well, when, when you know, and again, not to sound like two old farts commiserating, but, but when you and I were in our 20s, it was damn hard to get one credit card. Right. You know, I mean, I, I didn't have my first credit card, I think, until I was around 22 or 23, because you just couldn't. It was, a, you know, it was a real challenge. And it was like, oh, hey, I finally got a credit card. And then you didn't use it, right? You would be very, very careful about it. And now you've got, you know, I mean, they're sending credit cards out to kids now. I mean, they've got a whole credit card program that they advertise on TV. Credit cards for your children. Um, yeah, and, obviously, and obviously, most people don't know how to utilize them. That's yeah, the real problem. Yeah, clearly. Tim, thanks for the call. <laughs> Okay, enough of the old days. Let's talk about now. (laughs) Is it Sylvia or Silva in North Carolina? Oh, I'm sorry, it's Len in Silva, North Carolina. Hey, Len, what's on your mind today? Well, I got a a problem with... uh, something that's that is concerning to everybody in this country we have problems with our blood supply how so one of the problems i've been i've been giving blood for a long time i've given 27 gallons of blood wow well i'm a piker compared to my father who gave 125 and you still have veins uh, left huh yeah still have veins left but when they call me up, uh, I give platelets, which means I lie in the chair for 90 minutes while I'm there pumping it out and pumping it back in. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm an AB negative, so they really like to see me. Right. And uh, they call me up, and I, you know, I'm lying, I, lying on a bed uh, 
with, you know, like 10 or 15 other people in in this room that's, you know, maybe 700 square feet. And I said, are you requiring everybody to have their vaccination? And they said, no, but we're checking the blood. And I'm sitting there thinking, hmm, they're checking the blood. After I've given the blood, there's something wrong with this picture. Yeah, a few hours later, they'll discover that you were exposed. That I was exposed. So I decided, I've decided that until they start requiring vaccinations for everybody, I'm not going to give blood. And I'm, I'm vocal about this when I talk about it. Good. But there's, there's another thing that uh, you need to think about with the blood supply. If I was gay, I couldn't give blood if I had had, had sex in the last 90 days. Yeah, which is a, a wildly outdated rule. I didn't realize that was still on Ab- the books. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, it's still on the books. I can't remember, uh, but somebody, there was, I mean, there that was a guy that... Yeah, no, and I and I understand where it comes from, and I understand that. But you know, now it should be a moot point. Yeah. But here, here again. Uh, well, plus I'm because just, they can, they've got you know f- instant AIDS tests, uh, you know, or HIV tests. Oh yeah. You know, oh so yeah. This is, and, and the it should be is, just was, dealt with was, like any other blood, you know, like hepatitis, any other blood-borne disease. You know. Absolutely. Hep C, AIDS, you know, and and it's treatable. And the thing is. They can't assure me that people are going to be vaccinated when I go to give blood. But that's the big I, risk, Glenn. Is you are walking. This is you're talking about my restaurant scenario. Only this is you know in in your universe oh, yeah. of oh, wanting yeah. to give blood. That's what made and me. It's like think I don't want to be sitting morning. next. Yeah, go ahead. That's what made me think about it, and I sat there and I thought, oh, that's that's really even worse. And the fact that they're trying to, they need my blood. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, see, this is the thing. I think that we need to be like, you know, I told the story a couple of weeks ago about I called my chiropractor and I said, you know, my back needs to be adjusted. And, and are you vaccinated? And he's like, no. And I said, OK, call me when you are. Len, thank you. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. On the other hand, at my doctor's offices, at my doctor's office, uh, you know, for a physical a while ago, you want to keep your job? You're vaccinated. <laughs> Tom Hartman here with you. Over on Twitter, I noticed uh, Big Brother Trump, <laughs> who I think is actually uh, Eric, uh, says, I just tell anti-vaxxers that the only people in hospitals now are unvaccinated people, which is true. The vast majority, yes, the Delta variant is you know, causing some breakthroughs. There were 4,000 of them in Massachusetts, people who are fully vaccinated and yet were diagnosed with COVID. The vast majority of those, though, were people who work in jobs where you have to be tested regularly. Sports figures, people who work in hospitals, things like that. And they showed up positive. I I think this is what happened to Bill Maher. They showed up positive, but they felt fine. They didn't know that they had the virus. And so it was like, you know, a a non, an infection that doesn't show symptoms, an asymptomatic infection. But if somebody's in the hospital, and particularly if somebody's dying from COVID, you can pretty much bet your bottom dollar that they didn't get vaccinated. And that's what's going on. Kevin in Santa Rosa, California. Hey, Kevin, what's up? Hi there. So I look at the CDC COVID data tracker every day. And I'm a physicist. and I understand the mathematics of exponential growth. Mm-hmm. And 
within about the last um, 10 days or so, California has gone from about eight cases per 100,000 people to yesterday's data was 17. So we got somewhere around a 12-day doubling time. Yeah. Yeah. And and California has gone from number one in the nation in fewest number of cases to median. Wow. In that amount of time. Yeah, that's the Delta variant. June 15th, uh, we opened up the state. Mask requirements, etc. Also, so I think those two things are going on together. Yeah, and then the July Fourth holiday is coming in a week and a half, and and I think we're going to start seeing the beginning of a of of the fourth wave, or what I'm referring to as the Great Culling. Yeah, I agree. So, okay, Kevin, thank you. Thanks for sharing that information. I appreciate it. It's good to hear from you, Paul in uh, Zilla, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Hi, Tom. I just wanted to address two things. You talked about um, wanting to uh, uh, frequent places that require vaccination. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is our winery tasting room has been doing for a while now. No Good on you. What's your winery, Paul? Give them a, give them a, a plug. Uh, Paradiso's Del Sol Winery and Organic Vineyard in Zilla, Washington. Oh, how cool. Do you have, uh, is it possible to order your organic wines on, online? Yes, you can go to our website, paradisosdelsol.com, and connect. And we actually deliver wine to people's doorsteps. We don't get to Portland too often, but uh, my wife's favorite cousin is down in that neck of the woods. We do <laughs> Paradiso del Sol. That's like, uh, what, Spanish or Italian for the paradise of the sun? It, exactly. It's Italian, Greek, and Spanish. I have ancestors from all countries. Okay, great. You also have somebody call in and talking about the discrimination against gays and giving blood, and that has changed quite a bit recently. Um, I don't view the questionnaire as being specifically gay-oriented. They mm-hmm. do ask questions about having sex you know, outside of your regular partner. You know, if you're a straight male and you go to a prostitute, yeah, they don't want your blood. Right. If you're a gay male and you're having casual sex with unknown people, they don't want your blood. Yeah, um, okay. and that's always been so. Yeah, I really that's a little more reasonable. Uh, Paul, back to your vineyard, if I may. Do you advertise that you must bring bring proof of vaccination, or do you just take wor- people's word for it? Number one, number two, do you advertise it? Number three, what kind of response are you getting? I would well, think that this I, would give you a competitive advantage. Actually, am I wrong? I don't know. You know, traffic is still very, very slow, and I don't know if our customers are typical of the general population, but wine people tend to be better educated, et cetera. And Mm so there is a very high rate of people vaccinated. We do ask people. We don't, at this point, demand proof because that's really pretty difficult. So we are largely on the honor system. We are primarily tasting outside when possible, although with this really hot weather, we're indoors. But I do have a good setup. I wear, because my wife's going through cancer treatment, I have to assume that everybody is an asymptomatic carrier. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wearing an N95 mask when people are present. Yeah, that's that's Um, good. I'm sorry to hear about your wife. I like I think that when I send out a newsletter to my customers and tell them that this is our, our procedure, that they receive it positively, I have not had any negative response. 
I have had a few people that we had to turn away, but uh, I didn't get any flack about it. Well, that's good. Paul, thank you. Thanks for sharing that story. This is, you know, I'm hopeful more and more companies will start doing this. And good on you, Paul. I, I wish you the best with your winery, too. Michael in Las Vegas. Hey, Michael, what's up? Howdy, Tom. How are you this morning, sir? I'm alive and kicking, Michael. What's on your mind? God bless. Well, I wanted to tell you to keep your eye on Las Vegas, Clark County, Nevada, because we're, you know, we've been fully reopened for a couple months now, and we had our highest one-day total of new COVID cases in six weeks yesterday. 447 new coronavirus cases, and 411 of them statewide were in Clark County. So the Delta variant has arrived. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Oh, think of all the tourists that come from all over the world to Las Vegas, sir. Yeah. You know, we're bringing in, you know, people left and right, and there are no more mask mandates anywhere in the state. Governor Sisolak, you know, he felt so much pressure from the big businesses, the casinos, and, of course, you remember our mayor, Carolyn Goodman, making such a fool of herself last year on Anderson Cooper and some other um, nationwide shows where, you know, she went on complaining that we had closed down for so long. I mean, my Lord, it's, it's such a ridiculous dichotomy. If you think about it, I mean, you're going to have mass death if you stay open, Mm -hmm. which is going to crash the economy. People are going to be sick and hospitalized and dying, you know, well, and then there's the other the other statistic that needs to be repeated every day, and I'm I'm going to try to start doing that. Is that about a third of people who have symptomatic COVID but never end up hospitalized? About a third of those people who are men have erectile dysfunction as a side effect of having had COVID. <laughs> and especially for people going to Vegas, you know, maybe there there should be a sign in the airplanes that says. You know, you know, I mean, Viagra doesn't you, work anymore, buddy. People are still coming for for lap dances and bachelor and bachelorette parties. And yeah, yeah I mean, you know, we've got a new resource world opening up tonight at 11 o'clock. I know that, you know, they're going to have their pool open because it's going to be a 24 hour thing. You know, at least that's outside. But, mm. you know, I I just don't know why we're not being smarter about this. You know, Governor Sisolak, he's a Democrat. I'm, I'm glad that he got elected, but I just think he, he caved into 
corporate pressure way too quickly well, and at least should have kept mask mandates in place because my lord think just again think of all the people from around the united states and the world that come to las vegas to vacation you know and they're coming from everywhere and they're going back home and it's just gonna with this contagion being so contagious the delta variant i mean it's yeah. just gonna it's going to be a problem. Here's what your governor is dealing with and every other politician in America. I got an email today from uh, FreedomWorks, you know, the organization that the Cokes <laughs> started back in the day that, that brought us the Tea Party. And they're doing it all over again, yeah, only this time it's around critical race theory and the Democrats' uh, effort to, uh, well, I'll read it to you. I'll read you a couple of sentences. Thomas, I have some great news to share with you. This week, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and his fellow radicals in the U.S. Senate held a procedural vote to bring the far left's election takeover to the floor for a final vote. And thanks to the action of FreedomWorks grassroots activists across the nation who sent over 467,000 messages and made over 45,000 phone calls, totaling more than 800 hours on the phone, it failed on a 50-50 party line vote as 60 votes uh -huh. were needed to advance the legislation thanks to the Senate filibuster. While this is undoubtedly a huge victory, the fight for election integrity is far from over. The far left is determined. You know, and, and they do this, this uh, now this is the, about the election bill, but they've been doing this about, you know, masking they were doing this. Uh, the, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's like you've got these right-wing billionaires who are doing everything they can to try to make Joe Biden fail. And if part of making I, I Joe Biden fail exactly right. means having a massive ep epidemic where lots and lots of people die and the economy gets shut back down again, I think they're just fine with that. I think they're yeah. happy about that. I think anything, you know, if they can prevent legislative victories for the Senate Democrats and, you know, the House and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, they're willing to say, do anything. Um, and you they know, are. Think of that gentleman out of San Luis Obispo, that poor Asian man that got run out of there. They yeah. accused him of being in the Chinese Communist Party. All those, Right, a third-generation American. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Yeah, his family had been in the United States longer than my family has been in there, at least my father's family. It's incredible. Reading today from Warrior Is by Harley and Robin Zephyr. That's the story of their great grandfather who, in real life, killed Custer at Little Bighorn. And in fact, there's a map of the war, as it were, the battle. And they say that he is now the spirit keeper of Custer, which is remarkable. And there's a page and a half introduction to the book, and then it becomes a historically accurate novel, basically. This story is the traditional and cultural account of the life of. Nikokju Lakota warrior Mato Nyanpi, saved by bear, his name in English, also later known as Scarleg. Warrior is based upon a true story. What you are about to read has been told to us through our family, passed down as oral history from generation to generation. Every family has its own story. This is ours. It's up to you to visualize and experience the events described herein in order to determine what you believe or what you choose to accept from what you learn from these pages. You've likely never read a story quite like this before. In Warrior Is, the reader is able to visualize and experience the events and circumstances of Mato Nianpi's life. Many times the story is told in the present tense, such as if you were walking with Saved by Bear and his people as the events unfold. This was our original manner of storytelling. 
Other times the story is narrated in the past tense to account for a past perspective. Those of us who may not be entirely fluent in particular words or specific language as much as we may be fluent in spirit and honest communication, the life messages many times can be more meaningful than just the written or spoken words. Warrior is follows the timeline from the time of creation moving through Saved by Bear's birth in 1849 and going up to July 1876, two weeks after the Greasley Brass Battle. Please exercise your free will and follow your conscience when reading this story. The spiritual side is called upon you to open your spirit so that you may read this tale and learn about these events through your own spirit. And, you know, continues sort of like in that line, but here, right to the book. Prologue. He smelled the yellow of the sun. His spirit was alive and energetic. He felt the energy in his chest and all along the blood running through his veins. He looked to his left to see his great friend by his side. The strong scent of sage caressed his nostrils and reminded him of home. The movement over the high-running hilly ridge to the south caught his eye. He and Swift Bear sensed and felt the pathway opening up. So much had occurred so quickly, so suddenly, so dramatically. Their call to duty, his call to duty, filled his mind, his heart, his spirit. Today, it was meant to happen. It was presented to the people from the Creator. The plan was made. The warriors summoned. The preparation was done. It all led to this place, this portal in time. The sparse clouds to the west resembled mare's tails, and for a brief moment he remembered his white stone friend in the White Mountains. He remembered his spiritual commitment to protect his people, Grandmother Earth, and the sacred Hees Hapa. And time stood still for a moment, a small moment in time, through all of the ancient and original history of all the moments of time. And as the group of the horse-mounted soldiers rode briskly over the far ridge, the Creator shined that warm, nurturing light upon these warriors. Such as Creator had been doing since the beginning of time, since the beginning of Grandmother Earth and Grandfather Sky, and at the beginning of all things, all the moments of time forever had arrived here, now. It had come to this. The Creator's strong will and great invisible hand had placed them here. It was the Creator all along. It always was. It always would be. For one to know what led the young Lakota warriors to be here at this fateful site near the greasy grass river on this warm, sun-drenched day, one must go back, go back in time, way back to the beginning, when it was only the Creator, and the Creator of all things decided to create a new world. Her name would be Unsimaka, Grandmother Earth, and she would be created to hold and sustain life. All kinds of beings, all kinds of people would be given and placed upon and within her to show her love of life. And this is how it all began. Chapter 1, Origin The human beings evolved from the spirit. Before arriving in Wind Cave, we were star people. Many of us came from a place called the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters, an ancient star grouping and constellation that contains worlds comprised of the gift of life-giving water. Water is life. Mini Wikoni. The Pleiadian influence is an absolute, but those of us who claim to be relatives of the Pleiadians share a common bond with other indigenous people, regardless of where we are geographically on the earth. We will always remain Pleiadian star people. Spiritually, we have become human beings of different races and ethnicities, but the origin of our spirit is the water. And for us, and as to who we are, as the tribal people in a family way, our name is Minkoju, its evidence. It means life's subsistence through the gathering and planting by the waters and or river. The Minikochu spend their lives living by the waters. 
This is something that many of our own people do not know or understand, but this is our history, not only of our physical existence, but also the history of our spiritual existence on Unsimaka. The book is Warrior Is by Robin and Harley Zephyr. in Davenport, Iowa. Hey, Molly, what's up? Uh, hi, Tom. I'm just uh, calling back as a follow-up call about the uh, voting emergency. I called into your program last month uh, mm-hmm. because our auditor here in Scott County stepped down from her position that she had been elected to in November for personal reasons, including death threats. And so with her leaving her post, the five-member board of supervisors could choose either to appoint someone or call for a special election. Well, there are two Democrats and five Republicans on our five-member board of supervisors, and the three Republicans chose to appoint a Republican to the position. So we Surprise, uh, surprise. Is uh, it a QAnon exactly. Republican or just a garden-variety Republican? Probably just a garden variety. I don't mm-hmm. really know her that well. I, um, no. Um, but what happened as a result of this, the Scott County Democrats and other groups here in the community in Scott County decided to try to garner enough signatures. We needed over 9,500 signatures approximately to call for a special election. So we had a special election petition drive. And it used to be we had 30 days to get signatures, mm-hmm. and the Republicans who run the state legislature, the Senate and the House of Representatives and the governorship, they've been passing bills the last couple of years to change the voting rights in our state. And one of the changes was you only have two weeks to gain signatures. So we worked our tails off and we did uh, collect 6,100 signatures, so not enough mm to call for a special election, but that was an extraordinary number for a two-week period. So this person was uh, appointed, and so now we're stuck with a Republican auditor who, by her own words, clearly does not know what she's doing because her quote, I just have to figure it out and make it work, unquote. So this is a person that only had been on the uh, Davenport City Council here in Scott County for a while. So this is just one of the things that has happened to our voting rights here in yeah. Scott County and Iowa. And there are new bills that we have to put up with now. I've been reading the most recent 30-page bill that, among other things, only a relative can help a person fill out their absentee ballot. Right. And only one drop box per county for the absentee ballots, and the hours of operation for the polls have been lowered. So it's... Um, it's a mess. So it's a mess. It Molly, a thank you mess. for the update. I, I, I want to get another caller in here before the end of the hour, but thank you. Thank you very much You're for welcome. that update. We'll keep, and and keep us up show. to date. Thank you. Kurt in Duluth, Minnesota. Hey, Kurt, what's on your mind? Hi, um, I just had an idea um, possible about the filibuster, because there's no... The minority has no incentive to compromise with the majority. 
as it is right now. And if we don't get rid of the filibuster, one way I, I would think to incentivize the minority to compromise is, is to have, like, as the bill is introduced to the Senate, have a two-week period where you have to, where you can debate the bill and you'd have to get, like, a 70-vote vote vote to pass. And then after two weeks of debating and they can't get that to pass, then it just goes to a majority vote. So then you would have, the minority would definitely have some kind of incentive to uh, at least get their voice in on that bill. I I get what you're saying, Kurt, and it's kind of a variation on my suggestion for a Jimmy Stewart filibuster where, you know, if you want to block forward motion in the Senate, you have to stand there and talk continuously and you have to have 40 members on the floor at the same time. I do think, though, that what we really should try in the United States Senate is something called democracy. It was this idea that the founders had. They wrote it into the Constitution, and that is that whoever gets the majority plus one, or the majority actually, you know, would uh, prevails. But, Kurt, I get what you're saying. Thank you for the call, and thank you all for being with us today. And special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Netherkin, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde for helping make this program work. And thank you to you for your support of our program, for letting our affiliates know that you're listening and for sharing the good word. And get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Have a wonderful weekend, be safe, and we'll talk to you on Monday. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 